HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, host of Speaking Broadly. Each week, I interview a powerful woman in the food world who shares their moving story behind their success. I find their words motivating, and I hope you do too. Today, my guest is Emily Highland. Emily and her husband, Matt, met in college, oh, so long ago, (laughs) and they bonded over a series of pizza dinners. Who would know that that foreshadowed the incredible success that they would have today with two restaurants, one, Emily, in uh, Clinton Hill in Brooklyn, and the other, Emmy Squared in Williamsburg. The food at these restaurants is extraordinary. And Matt, Emily's husband, is responsible for the brilliant ideas that go into the food. Emily is the COO, Chief Operating Officer. She makes it all happen. And today, we're going to talk about Emily's journey to this position and the way that her background is different than so many others who do this job and how it informs her own management style. So, Emily, you founded a relationship and a company based on pizza. What do you think is the primal call of pizza that makes it so incredibly universal and important? I think that pizza resonates with everybody because it it touches into the nostalgia of our childhoods and is a really calcified archetypal experience to us as Americans. So who doesn't like pizza? <laughs> Apparently everybody likes pizza. Right. What was the pizza of your childhood? The pizza of my childhood, uh, I feel like we ate a lot of Domino's. <laughs> <laughs> You've moved beyond that. I have. <laughs> and what do you think about your pizzas made them instant cult hits? Was it the toppings? Was it the community you built? 
I think it's a combination. Uh, we Matt prides himself on uh, sourcing traceably and locally for as much as possible, and we have really great vendor relationships. And a lot of care and love has gone into the making of the dough and the way we stretch our pizza. And how do you stretch your pizza? Um, I, I I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I know that there's a very particular way that he and the pizza crew do it um, to define the Emily pizza and. Uh, paralleled with the ingredients and the way we do things are those staff members and are those neighborhood folks and that sort of trifecta of staff uh, guests and food really make everything special to me. Now, I've always heard that the way to have a successful restaurant is to focus on one thing and do it really well. And what strikes me about your business is that not only do you have unbelievable pizza that everyone loves, but the Emmy Burger I love the Emmy burger on the pretzel bun with the Grafton cheese and the, you know, melted onions and the chicken wings. So how do you think you hit not one perfect note, but three perfect notes? Well, thank you, first of all. (laughs) Um, I think that we are sort of, we broadly define ourselves sometimes as like adult junk food. So in that (laughs) vein, we do well. Um, But I, I think that we have really evolved based on Matt being, in my opinion, a really talented chef and having a lot to offer and not wanting to be pigeonholed into just coming in and making pizza. But, you know, he's trained from he's a culinary background and uh, is a trained chef and um, has a lot of things that he likes to experiment with. And that has really evolved the menu. So I I think you started the burger because he was just bored of pizza. Yes. Do you think he's (laughs) going to get bored of pizza, burgers and wings and come up with something next? Like, I guess you're doing sandwiches. You hadn't done those. Is there something else that you're aching to do? Um, He has a love of pasta. And when Emily first opened, there was a a pasta section on the menu. And uh, just by virtue of people coming in and wanting to eat pizza and burgers, that took the back burner. So I I would hope that someday in the future we could be able to offer pastas at our restaurant or another restaurant or something like that. I think... Pasta by Emily. That's, uh, His duck <laughs> ragu is amazing. I know. I, I think that's what's in your freezer, right? So, right. <laughs> <laughs> Always. You are ready and prepared for pasta. So your role at the restaurant is not chef, as uh, we both know. It, it is to run the restaurant, be the, to be the chief operating officer. What exactly does that mean? What do you do? I do an array of things, and the size of our restaurant still, um, or our restaurant group, is still one that we are very, very hands-on, and that's something that's very important to us. And I like when people say, you know, I like coming here because I see the owner's always working, or she was just sweeping up something in the kitchen, or he was, (laughs) you know, doing X, Y, and Z. Um, So I think that... I, aside from that nitty gritty, I, we're still feeling out the true definition of our roles. You know, we have a director of operations now who started as a waitress and then managed operations and now sort of runs the, the hands-on while I do bigger picture things. So I'm very involved in our, uh, in our PR and our sort of outward facing brand, if you will, on the larger scale, which is a newer role for me. And I facilitate all of the larger operational things that we're doing. So, so if someone wanted to become Emily Highland, how does that happen? What is the way to work up to do the PR, do the outward-facing things? I think that my path has been very uh, unintentional, and I really feel like I'm in a place in my life where I'm sort of in that place that I'm supposed to be, and I really like that, but it wasn't easy getting there, and if you ever asked me that this is what I'd be doing, I wouldn't have even been able to imagine. So I think to the advice I would give is that any 
any parts of your journey are will affect where you go. So every experience is worthwhile. You know, I was at Bank Street studying to become a school building leader um, and wanted to be a school principal in my former career. And I spent uh, a third of uh, the program there and spent a lot of money on that. And it was a little frustrating to sort of resign and, and withdraw and throw that out the window. But at the same time, it wasn't really throwing it out the window as much as giving me experiences, learning what it means to be like a reflective practitioner and how to grow myself as a human. And all of that has fed into where I am now. I'd love to hear the way in which... Uh, your teaching has influenced the way that you work with people at the restaurant. And I know that you were working in a high special needs school, which probably gave you more and different experience than your average English teacher. Right. Uh, I think that my experience working in education has informed what I do greatly in terms of large scale systems implementation. I was um, one of the literacy uh, specialists at my school, for lack of a, a more informal title, and uh, I was required to track and organize the reading levels of, you know, I think 400 kids at the time and do professional development for all of the teachers at the school to increase growth. So on a large scale, working, working in spreadsheets, being able to track performance is something that really uh, comes very naturally to me at this point. Um, and, you know, setting goals with people, being very uh constructive in conversations in growth as opposed to punitive is a big philosophy that I learned when I was working with uh, Urban Assembly uh, in the public school system. And uh, that's something we really value in our culture and community. So uh, it's can, informed a lot. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What does that mean to be you know, constructive and not punitive? I feel that that's at the core of your philosophy. And it's something I, I'd love to hear more about. Thanks. Um, so we really value restorative discipline and restorative discipline is working with the whole person and really understanding why that went wrong, how that went wrong and how we can help you fix that and support growth as opposed to saying this was wrong. Therefore, X, Y, Z punishment. Um, that doesn't really encourage or motivate anybody. And especially in a world where there's lots of high uh, turnover in terms of staff by the nature of the industry, it doesn't seem fruitful or beneficial from a business perspective to be so punitive either. So can you give me a specific example of someone in the kitchen or front of the house where, you know, what they would do and what your response would be? Sure. Um, I think it's a lot of a lot of conversation-based growth um, that is very informally tracked in the beginning. It's not like, oh, there's a disciplinary log right away and this is recorded. We're having lots of organic conversations. So we had an employee, and, and, and part of it is also really being invested in the people as people first. And uh, that takes a lot of work and shifting of your paradigm as a business owner, because I wouldn't have this business if not for all of these people. So we had this uh, amazing employee. He's actually not with us anymore, but was perpetually late. So first having conversations and then me, you know, checking in with him and talking about strategies for getting to work on time. And then me, like when I was a teacher, you know, calling that student who was always late at seven in the morning and saying, get the hell out of bed, you know, <laughs> giving amazing. him a text saying, get your ass to work. Oh, can I say, sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to go right ahead. <laughs> um, so, so putting those structures in place, being involved, genuinely caring and trying to facilitate that. And then if it does become a problem, taking it to those next levels, well, we're going to put a written action plan in place that, you know, these are the expectations for benchmarks for improvement. And we will have to take more serious steps if, if things don't work out. And what about the the personalities, the personalities of the kids you're used to dealing with, and then the personalities of the kids in the 
kitchen. Are there similarities there as well? I think so. I think it's really interesting when I noticed the demographic of, of kitchens in New York City, and I saw a lot of students that I had in the public school system, and it's like, oh... I know, I know you, the the nice person who's not doing any work but is schmoozing with me, and then you know is always good. And this one who's a total uh, a total under the radar person who has a lot of potential, and this one who needs encouragement. And there is an array of awesome people that work in our restaurants. And I, I do, I'm very big into archetypes, so I know I was talking about that earlier. But I do feel like there's these archetypal type of of people that you can see throughout your lives and the parallels from the classroom to the kitchen for me have been very interesting in that regard. What archetype works best in the kitchen environment? Oh gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that kitchens are, are so evolving in how they're operated um, that it's a, it's a new brand of, um, of, a, of a, a model or an icon. I, th- I think people that are interested in caring about their employees and not yelling and screaming and building constructive whole real workplaces. So when you left the work at Bank Street in order to, uh, you know, join Madden, create this restaurant, you were giving up a lot. How do you deal with giving up something that you had worked so hard to build to do something else that you were going to work hard to build? It was a really interesting transition for me. I was very much on a career track in the world of education, but was extremely burnt out from a lot of the misinterpretation of the Common Core. I was an English teacher, so um, felt very put upon to only read and write for information, and mm. creativity was really um, not not allowed <laughs> to in, a, in the degree I wanted it to be or what English class should have been, in my opinion. So it was an easy transition out from that world. Um, it was harder for my parents to hear me say, well, <laughs> I'm withdrawing from this career I've been successful in. I'm, you know, not, I'm stopping graduate school. Um, but I was in yoga school on the weekends during that time. And that was really the thing that gave me the courage to take a leap and pursue yoga as my career. And that really built up for about a year uh, while Matt was in the process of realizing that this was what he was ready to jump in and do. And that afforded me the space to be able to support him. But when we opened Emily, I was still adjuncting at um, City Tech. I was still teaching a bunch of yoga classes and private clients. And I was like, I can do this. (laughs) And I couldn't. (laughs) That is doing a lot of things all at once. Right. (laughs) I think I've heard you say that the restaurant is even more work, you know, than, uh, working at the schools was or which um in your estimation like what has taken the most emotional work and challenge in the jobs that you've done they're very different um i helped open a school with the in the public school system and that that was harder than opening both restaurants combined for sure um but i i think there's different levels of emotional uh stress or or necessity when you're working in in those types of environments. They're very high pressure situations, either one. And I think that building emotional fortitude is something that I'm learning how to do. I'm a very naturally just raw and trusting and nice person. And building a thicker skin has become really important in both of those domains. And how does one build a thicker skin? What are the steps to that? I think, you know, when Emily first opened and it's my name on the window and (laughs) something I obviously identify with very much and take a lot of pride in, you know, seeing 50 Yelp reviews that are all five star and then two really nasty one star reviews and only being able to tune into those nasty ones and letting it consume you and crying. (laughs) And, you know, now it's like, okay, I'll, I'll scroll through and see if there's any major issues, but I'm not going to let 
the first of all people's nastiness but um second of all the general vibes of something so subjective affect me um when there's opportunity to get feedback in a more constructive manner as and it seems like there are far more five stars than two stars fortunately (laughs) (laughs) ever and so the yoga practice is something that uh you're very passionate about and you continue to this day I do. I haven't been practicing as much as I would like to be. Um, I have been seeing my my mentor, uh, Joanne Silver, who's amazing. We're in a women's show, so I can <laughs> plug her. Um, she teaches at Yoga Maya, which is where I did my teacher training in Chelsea. And uh, I see her once a week to do like a really down-on-the-ground restorative practice, which is the type of yoga that I had evolved to be teaching. And that groundedness has been essential um, in the work that I'm doing. And she's really an important person who I check in with and uh, who was the inspiration for learning about the woman who will I'll read from later. Well, since you've, um, you've mentioned it for any first time listeners, I ask my guests to read a passage of something that is important to them. And Emily, you brought something on mindfulness, I think. I did. Would you like me to read I'd it I'd love now? to hear it. Okay. Um, so it's an excerpt from Comfortable with Uncertainty, which is by Pema Chodron, who is a Buddhist thinker and writer. Um, and it, this is, I read this passage like five times a day. It is a real grounding one for me. So it's called Experience Your Life. A woman is running from tigers. She runs and she runs and the tigers are getting closer and closer. She comes to the edge of a cliff. She sees a vine there. So she climbs down and holds onto it. Then she looks down and sees that there are tigers below her as well. At the same time, she notices a little mouse gnawing away at the vine to which she is clinging. She also sees a beautiful little bunch of strawberries emerging from a nearby clump of grass. She looks up, she looks down, and she looks at the mouse. Then she picks a strawberry, pops it in her mouth, and enjoys it thoroughly. Tigers above, tigers below, this is the predicament we are always in. We are born, and sooner or later we die. Each moment is just what it is. Resentment, bitterness, and holding a grudge prevent us from seeing and hearing, tasting and delighting. This might be the only moment of our life. This might be the only strawberry we'll ever eat. We could feel depressed about this, or we could finally appreciate it. We could delight in the preciousness of every single moment. That's very beautiful. Thank you for that. And with that, we're going to take a commercial break. This is Dana Cowan with Speaking Broadly. My guest is Emily Highland. Here's the break. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. 
Hello, it's Dana Cowan speaking broadly with my guest, Emily Highland, and we were talking about mindfulness and yoga and bringing practice into your life to take a deep breath and enjoy every single moment. Now, I know that you uh, had ideas about bringing yoga to restaurant groups to help train restaurant workers because everybody in a restaurant could take an extra breath. Is this something that you've decided to pursue? Uh, So we tried to pilot this in the fall at Emily, and I just haven't been able to catch up with myself to continue it. But there's a yoga studio right next door to the restaurant, and one of my beloved friends and teachers works at the restaurant as well, Frank. Um, And he and I taught some classes on Friday afternoons uh, that were free for staff members. And uh, now that sort of the holidays and everything have settled back down and we're into the spring, hopefully, um, (laughs) I would love to get that back up and running because it is something that people hunched over their prep stations, people on their feet all day, shoulders, low back, really need a little bit of extra love. And uh, it's totally worthwhile. I I look forward to your actually expanding that pilot program because having worked in a restaurant myself, just knowing how stressful that environment is, the notion of everybody doing yoga and doing it together seems very empowering. Now, you're also a poet. We haven't talked too much about your writing, <laughs> but you're a fabulous writer, and poetry is something that has flowed through you. Are you still writing? I am. I <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a poet as much as I did when I was back in grad school, but um, and I haven't published, I, I don't think, since 2013. But I, I do write well in times of, you know, turmoil or stress, and the restaurant world is perpetually so. So it has been nice fodder for work. And uh, my voice, I feel like the last six months or so has really been emerging as well. So uh, I do write. I haven't been actively publishing, but I would like to get back into that when I have a little bit more time again. And what is the voice that you've found? Like, what is the voice you're most com- comfortable with? I'm, I mean, I'm a terrible confessionalist and I'm a, a narrative <laughs> confessionalist through and through. And I just feel like I've, I've found courage and honesty to uh, reflect and pontificate about things that are happening in my life without judgment or fear of anyone seeing them because they're in my my notebook at home. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to, you don't have to judge yourself. No one else is going to, it's between two covers. Now you've talked about, um, contending with two things that plague many people in the restaurant business, um, weight loss, you know, controlling your weight. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, that's something I've always struggled with in my adult life. I was a college basketball player. And as soon as I left that world, it was like, you know, beer and pizza and (laughs) And and working in jobs where you're only not the active. best beer right. and the best pizza. Yeah, that'd be sad. Yeah. But uh, um, and then in, in my 20s, I, I gained a lot of weight, and it was a real struggle to to rein that back in and find a healthy lifestyle. And that's where yoga really was pivotal for me. And before Emily opened, I was in the best shape of my adult life, and then that sort of just had a hard stop. And it was as if yoga, in the way it was, stopped, and I started you know, eating pizza every single day for the last three years. So I really feel like this last six or eight months has been a reevaluation, a reemergence of focusing on that. I, there's an awesome trainer who's a regular at Emily who founded a CrossFit gym in Clinton Hill, who I go see um, and is, is wonderful and kind and patient. And I still practice yoga and um, am working to, you know, again, keep it in perspective. It's a, a hard industry, but find the balance between all of these affairs and events that revolve around eating and drinking and finding a healthy lifestyle. And so do you find that the best way to approach it is to um, 
to have the athletics or the yoga as a counterbalance or you sort of eat less pizza. I can't imagine really being faced with delicious pizza and burgers and fries and chicken wings every single day. So I, I work at the expo station at Emily every Saturday. So that's my pizza eating night. Um, I, I, I'm partial to the, the Emily pizza at Emily restaurant is my favorite. It's named after me, obviously. So why wouldn't I like it? So I have that on Saturday nights. So what is, what is the Emily pizza? It is a white pie. And when it comes out of the oven, it's topped with crumbled pistachios, drizzled with honey and truffle sotichinari cheese. And what else is drizzled with honey at Emily? I think honey is one of your favorite ingredients. We love honey. Um, the colony pizza, which is uh, pepperoni, pickled chili and honey. So you get salty, spicy, sweet. That's going to make me hungry and happily, you know, lunch isn't too far away. Right. And taking care of yourself is another thing that you're passionate about and preaching to others. Does that also go back to the yoga practice? It does. Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, sorry. that's <laughs> um, self-care is something I've really been working on in my adult life. And I really try to foster that in our community. So, um, you know, knowing if, if you're too sick to work, like don't just show up and get everybody else sick. Like put the structures in place where you're in touch with your manager, you're finding coverage or reaching out to me so that you can rest. Or, um, if you have some sort of important life event that you really need to be at, like prioritize that, you know, our restaurant is full of actors and comedians and aspiring writers. And, um, one of my, my former, um, manager from uh, Emmy square just left this morning to go for a two and a half week residency at Yado. Um, which is amazing. And uh, Yada, which is an incredible writer's colony. Right. <laughs> She's probably on the train right now. But it's really <laughs> nice that, that um, people come in and out of our community in a way that supports both what we need from them and their passions as well. It does make restaurants seem like the perfect place to actually take care of yourself. And sometimes it seems like the reverse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the way in which um, the restaurants fit into the community and the community you've created with the uh, people from whom you get your ingredients and the locals. Where do you get your ingredients? Uh, we get our ingredients all over the place. Uh, most notably, we are big supporters of Gotham Greens, and they've big, been big supporters of us. For the listeners who don't know, they're the hydroponic um, low water usage facility on top of the Whole Foods in Gowanus, and they have a few more um, in the city and in the country now. So we get beautiful lettuce greens and basil for both restaurants year-round from them. Uh, we use Fleischer's, which is um, for our beef, and you can literally trace the cow to the field where it's been raised, and their practices are, are very great, and they've been supportive as well. And then we use Myers Produce. Um, she is a, a northeastern forager, and she and her company go to all of these great farms and then bring the really awesome produce back to chefs in the city who can get their hands on really um, sustainably grown stuff. So when you say forager, is that... She's going into the woods and finding things and the fields and finding things, or she's actually like they're growing pumpkins and she brings back pumpkins. Yeah, that that's me misspeaking. So Matt actually met her. Her name is Annie Meyer um, when they both worked at the Spotted Pig years ago. And she was there like their forager. That was her job there. She would like go to the green market and find all the best stuff and bring it back for April and the crew to cook. Um, and so now she has expanded that into a business where she does that on a larger scale all over the Northeast and will bring the products from the farms back to the chefs. <laughs> I really liked the idea of her as a wood sprite, right? <laughs> but it's equally fantastic that she's going and gathering from you know farms north of us. Um, so the foods that you prepare, the burgers, the pizza, 
the chicken wings are things that everyone is obsessed with. It is the moment, right? Partly due to Instagram, I think they're just juicy and drippy and photogenic. And do you think that people will get tired of them, even though I know there's nostalgia for them? <laughs> do you think people will get tired of these iconic American foods? I, I mean, I personally, you know, I'm not sick of pizza yet, and I've probably eaten it more than anybody else in this country in the last three and a half years, but I don't think so. I think even aside from the nostalgic component, I think they work because they're simple and nourishing and, uh, you know, when you're having a good day, they can be really fun to eat with a group of friends. When you're having a really bad day, you can order some pizza and sit on your couch by yourself in your pajamas. Like, <laughs> there's no right or wrong way to engage with things like pizza and burgers. And uh, at their heart, they're very fun. So I don't think, I mean, do you think you'd get sick of pizza and burgers? I actually don't think I could get sick of <laughs> pizza and burgers. And I think one of the great things about pizza and burgers, less so chicken wings, is that they're great sort of vehicles for other flavors. So you maybe could get rid, you know, get tired of a classic pizza, although I wouldn't, but when you put pineapple on it as you do or you put pistachio nuts on it, you can really make pizza completely new every single day. You're just talking about hot dough, and I will never get tired of hot dough. Right, covered in cheese. Covered in cheese. <laughs> exactly. The people who don't eat pizza covered in cheese, I don't understand those people <laughs> at all. Do you see any other trend emerging in that obsessive food zone? I don't know. Um, I feel like, you know, those bagels and donuts and desserts and that sort of thing have had their heyday. Our food, I'm proud to say our food looks really beautiful, but is not meant, is not designed for Instagram. And I think there's this real uh, merging of food and Instagram that has created this place where some people are trying to make food for Instagram, which is very counterintuitive to me. But um, right, because at some point you have to eat it. You know, you right. do you shoot it. That takes some time, but then you do have to eat it. Right. <laughs> hmm. um, and I noticed that you can you know order a, a pizza at home. I think there's been an enormous shift in the world where people are bringing the restaurant to them. What are your thoughts on that? The evolution of the restaurant. I mean, as a, you know, probably caviar's best customer as a consumer, <laughs> I, I think that it's nice in this really fast-paced city, especially, to be so tired that you don't want to go out and you don't want to cook, especially if you're in the food world. So you can get really high-quality, awesome food from your friends at all of the local restaurants. It's amazing. And it's been transformative for us. It's been a great revenue generator and gives us the opportunity to, you know, increase back-of-house wages and that sort of thing. Um, which is really awesome for us. But I, I don't, I mean, I love to order food in <laughs> and sit like in my PJs with my cats and, and eat it. It's it's the best to me at least. So, But do you think it'll change the role of the restaurant in any way? I mean, because you could, for example, just open a new concept that was delivery only, that didn't have a location or what do you think? Yeah, we've actually talked about that. You know, do we need to get a little spot where we just have a wood-burning pizza oven and crank out pizza, akin to like, you know, we're in Roberta's here, they have their takeout spot. Uh, our restaurant wasn't designed probably because we didn't anticipate it to do the volume that we do. And we're not set up to, we're barely set up to be able to handle full service in the restaurant and honoring all the delivery that's wanted on like a weekend night. So it's challenging. And um, we didn't do delivery or takeaway for 
probably takeaway probably only started like maybe six months into Emily, and it took us about a year and a half to finally have Caviar convince us to to join them just because we were afraid of how that would affect, you know, Matt's very sensitive to diners in the, in the restaurant being prioritized. And, you know, when you have someone on, on expo, who's not as adept at maneuvering all of that, it can be challenging. And, and those customers, we want to have a great experience, but we also want the folks at home to get warm food delivered to them in a timely fashion. It, it seems to me that restaurants that are just opening can have that in mind, but to retrofit, to be able to service caviar and service people at home could be difficult. Right. And we didn't, to be honest, when we were opening the restaurant, that didn't even, like these sorts of logistics didn't factor in. Our, our expo pass is 24 inches wide, oh my God. which is barely two of our pizzas. So um, you have to you have to look into the future and try to cover all of your bases and and, and not make assumptions about how things will be, but prepare for all scenarios. So I think that your business will grow, right? There are expansion plans that we're not going to talk about potentially. Um, do you, what do you think of all the challenges to the restaurant business right now? You have um, increased labor costs. You have potentially in, increased um, rent costs and increased food cost. Do you think that that will change the restaurants that open in the future? I think so. It is hard to navigate all of those um, pegs there. We value paying people fairly. We value buying ingredients that are like pesticide and chemical free and, you know, locally grown. And so our prices reflect all of those values and customers don't always understand. That's why one of the reasons why a pizza costs, you know, $20 or whatever. And I think that all of those factors will affect restaurants. It will affect uh, it will affect how strategic they can be in evolving in other directions of where costs can be cut um, in terms of being flourishing and, and surviving models of business. But I, I don't see why, if people aren't strategic, restaurants can't work in that way. Now, the way you are going to work at the restaurant is you work with your husband. That must <laughs> present its own absolute benefits and challenges. What can you tell me about working with your husband? It has been, it, it is amazing for both of us, but it has easily been the hardest part of all of this for us. Um, and, you know, I ha- we half joke about it sometimes, but when Emily opened like that first year, like it's a miracle that we're still married after that, you know, like that was the biggest <laughs> test. And we've been together 15 years, so we've been through a lot of, of struggle, but that was by and large the hardest thing I think we'll ever do together and come out the other end. So, And what, what were the challenges? I think being together 24 hours a day, honestly, and not being able to flip the switch into husband-wife mode, which we still struggle with, you know, like if you're really pissed off at your business partner at the end of the day, you want to go home and and vent to your spouse about it. But when you're literally (laughs) taking the train home and walking into the apartment with that business partner, it's not so easy to just put the hat on and say, you know, hey, let's, let's hang out. You wind up getting into a fight. And because those lines are blurred, it becomes emotional, it becomes personal, and it becomes about your marriage and not about business. So that is a constant struggle that we have. And fortunately, we value each other and have a really solid foundation of love. So that won't change. But those are, are hard waters to navigate. And, uh, um, you know, for a time at, at Emily Restaurant, when we were still learning some of this and Matt was at Expo almost every night and I was hosting, you know, he would, you know, be like, all right, take this pizza, table eight. And I would be like, why are you why are you talking to me like that? That's rude. And he'd be like, <laughs> get this pizza out of the window. And I'd be like, you know, 
curse <laughs> F you, <laughs> you know, like what the hell is wrong with you? And I didn't realize that it's just like he's being a chef and I'm being treated like a person running food because that's the scenario that we're in. It has nothing to do with us personally. So it's not Although easy. you might want to suggest to him that even the person running food, he could you know, right. be more gentle with. But it's just a matter of terseness and a busy yeah. service, not like, <laughs> not like rudeness, just me right. projecting and assuming that that's what's happening. Right. So it's about me. Right. Yeah. We do it and we do it. We do it all the time. <laughs> and what about the fact that the restaurant has your name, there are dishes that have your name and yet you're not developing the food. Does that feel like an extra pressure to you, an extra pressure to Matt, a great joy? He's really sweet and named the restaurant after me. Um, and when we first opened, it was really weird because it felt like it was me. Like, this is Emily and telling all of our friends, what's it called? Like, oh, it's Emily. Matt named it after me. And it <laughs> felt very weird. And it's nice that now Emily, the restaurant, has its own personality and identity. And I feel like I was able to readopt my identity and separate the two. So that that segregation has been helpful. But I mean, it all boils down to just his pure sweetness and, you know, being a good husband. <laughs> oh, I love that. So how do you different, differentiate sort of your personality and the restaurant's personality? Well, I think, well, it's interesting. So Matt does our social media and everybody, for the most part, who engages with us about it assumes that I do it and that it has a feminine voice. And so I think he has a lot to do with cultivating that personality and um, its sort of anthropomorphic feel, if you will, on in the land of Instagram, pizza and heart smiley faces. Um, and I think it's also been interesting for me to, to realize there's, you know, I, I'm I'm somewhat part of a, a brand as opposed to just being an, a person, you know, so I, you know, if I'm at the restaurant and I'm having a bad day, it's really important that I'm smiling and, you know, like being Emily, who's there to welcome <laughs> and greet people and everything. And, you know, that can be weird when it feels so organic to you, but it, you, and you don't want it to feel like an act because it's not, but sometimes it almost does and you want to do things with integrity. So it can be, it can be murky. Um, but I do feel less, un and maybe it's just because I'm used to it, less uncomfortable with the restaurant being named after me, being associated with me. They're separate in that regard. Maybe it's because the restaurant has really thrived on its own. It has a very specific meaning in the world of food and you know what, what that is. Right. So it's good that it has your name, but I'm just a person. <laughs> yeah. I remember we, we contemplated naming our son after my husband, and so he would be a junior. And uh, the notion of calling two people the same thing, I just I could never get over it. But right. <laughs> on the other hand, my husband's not a restaurant. Right. <laughs> so it must, be, it must be sort of somewhat easier. And does Matt then have that feminine side? Do you think that this brings out and he gets to actually be a completely totally evolved human. <laughs> I think that he is just really good at, at tone and voice mm -hmm. and, uh, sort of perspective. And he sees the restaurant, I think as an extension, well, as an extension of both of us, but being named Emily, it's, um, an extension of me in terms of that, like outward facing look towards guests and clients and that sort of thing. So I think he really undertakes trying to embody that when he's interacting with folks and using emojis. <laughs> That's right. That's like a really great editor because a really great line editor will do something exactly in the tone of the author as opposed to trying to impose their own personality. And he chose the personality of the restaurant to be you right? because he loves you. He's putting so much love out in the world through the vehicle of Emily. Yeah, he is. And he really works hard at it. <laughs> now, um, at, I'm just curious. There must be people in this world who you 
look up to, who are um, motivating to, and particularly women, since we're on Speaking Broadly, it's all about women and success. And again, for first-time listeners, I ask each of my guests to suggest women to be included in the Food Hall of Deems. Can you tell me some women who you admire, who help you think through your life and people in my personal life? Well, great women in food who you think are fantastic role models. I think, um, I, I think Missy Robbins is somebody that both Matt and I really look up to and love Lilia. <laughs> she, <laughs> Chef Robbins can attest I'm there all the time eating way too much pasta. <laughs> um, but I, I, we think that what she has curated feels like such a, um, I don't want to say it. like our restaurants are much more like, you know, Brooklyn kids in the state of arrested development, having pizza and burgers in the best way. I'm uh-huh. not knocking what we do. I love what we do, but what she does feels so refined and, um, and grown up quote unquote, if you will, in terms of like those pastas and the way the dining room looks and, and the whole feel of, of what she provides is really, really inspiring. And it's been really nice to get to know her recently. Um, and another woman that I have become friendly with and I really look up to is uh, Kate Crater, um, I just think that in terms of talking about like Kate, having Kate, who is the restaurant editor at Bloomberg. Right. Yeah. Um, she is, I feel like she has just like a real true sweetness and like glow to her as a person and is just so like, she's, you know, this high power woman in food, but you wouldn't think it for a second when you're talking to her, she's just like so genuine. And I really respect that a lot. So it's been really nice to get to know her as well. And I look up to her also. And of course, I know Kate very well since Kate was the restaurant editor at Food and Wine. And she is my mentor in all things food. (laughs) (laughs) Kate has an extraordinary palate. And more than, um, in addition to having a tremendous sweetness, she's super sharp, analytical, a great writer, and a great friend to me and to many, many chefs. So I love the idea of. Kate being nominated to the um, <laughs> to the Hall of Dames. Also, for first-time listeners, I love to have you come away with a list of delicious places to eat. And I'm going to give you, Emily, choices. You either can choose a list of great places to eat in Brooklyn, or you can give me a great list of places to eat pizza or pasta since apparently carbs are your <laughs> best friend here i i admire someone who's you know probably eaten hundreds of pounds of pizza yeah um i'll go the pizza route great um though i do like the supporting my brooklyn folks but we'll you we'll can go, do both yeah we'll go the pizza route um so i i mean our heart lives at sota casa in downtown brooklyn which is where matt learned how to make pizza and uh luca the owner is very similar in his business model of you know people first and community and makes really legit um neapolitan pizza and he comes from the keste lineage so i would say keste is another excellent pizza restaurant um, I, Matt and I really have a soft spot for, uh, Staten Island pizza. So, um, Joe and Pat's for sure. Wait, what defines a Staten Island pizza? You know, I, I don't want to, you know, speak too technically cause I, I would have to, you know, check with all my nerdy pizza experts, but it looks like a New York pie. Um, the crust is a little bit thinner, um, and it's, um, very evenly topped and, uh, very crispy too. Uh, so Joe and Pat's out in Staten Island is fantastic. And then Ruby Rosa in the city, which is their sister restaurant, is amazing. 
Uh, and Matt and I have spent many a, a date night eating vodka pie there before, you know, this restaurant ever was even something of interest to us. Um, and then, I mean, you know, Lucali is great. When I was just down at South Beach Food and Wine Festival, we had Lucali down there too, which was, which was pretty cool to eat some New York pizza down in Miami. And one of our favorites is not to, you know, be tooting our horn because it's in our space, but Margo's Pizza, which is a pop-up by Adam Cuban that he does like once a month and he makes bar pie. And that's that. Uh, that is cooked in a pan, which is so it's pan pizza at its essence, and it's really what inspired us to um, to go into cooking pan pizza at Emmy Squared. And uh, it has this really crispy frico crust, which is a fried cheese edge essentially, and it's cracker thin, almost like your best uh, roller rink pizza from childhood. So you'll have to come visit me for one; it's fantastic. I really want to go and have that pizza. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds great. And so you don't get tired of eating pizza. Like you eat your own pizza, you eat other people's pizza. How is that? It's really important, first of all, to you know know what's going on, see what other people are doing, how they're you know presenting their pizzas, the basil that's being used, the this, the that, and. Um, so we like to do that. And I was actually just saying to Matt how I feel like I've not, I've been trying to be healthy. I haven't been eating so much pizza, how I feel like we need to go and, you know, take a tour of, you know, some of the classic places and, and do some of that again. Um, we're friends with Scott Wiener, so we want to do a, a tour with him. He does pizza tours all over the city. And uh, we have a tradition every time either one of us is on Heritage Radio, we pop out and eat Roberta's after. So my parents are meeting us here to eat some Roberta's in a little bit. But <laughs> Roberta's ends up on so many people's best of list. I have to wonder if it's just at all in part because Heritage Radio <laughs> is right here and so many fantastic people come and eat pizza, share their love of Roberta's pizza right. and, um, you know, make people jealous and want to come back here. Right. And it is a benchmark for so much of what pizza has become in the city. Um, we really enjoy eating here. Matt really likes their pastas here as well. And uh, we also really like Speedy Romeo. Justin is the owner there, is a lovely good person. And he has a Midwestern pie with provolone cheese on top of it. And you can get this jar of pickled chilies and just like throw them on. And What's the de definition of a Midwestern pie? I think it's this Midwestern cheese, the okay. provolone cheese, and then just like meat and peppers and, you know, hearty toppings. We have, we have a pie called the Camp Randall uh, named after the stadium at the University of Wisconsin as a tribute to Matt's dad because that's where he went to school. So it has, you know, cheese curds and sausage and uh, peppers and uh, onions on there. Is there an underrated pizza uh, universe? For example, the Detroit pie. I hadn't really heard of the Detroit pie, and then the Detroit pie was all the rage, and you guys do um, a Detroit pie. Is there some undiscovered place that's going to be the next pizza shape, density, topping? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty tuned into my little universe here, and I feel like that's a, you know, if, if Chef Matt were here, he'd have all that inside scoop for you. I just follow him along and eat the pizza. <laughs> I don't know all the nuances of the scene and what's coming up. That's that's his job. But I think it's I think it's fantastic that you do the the research, which is eating lots of pizza. We do. You should see his. He has a Google map of the country with like a key with levels of places of urgency to get to when we're in certain cities or areas in terms of pizza eating. It's quite impressive. He's a good man to hook up with in right. that case. <laughs> yeah. And you are a good woman to have as chief operating officer because you bring this dedication to people, to the business, and make people want to work for you and then make, make people want to eat there. Because I, I think if your staff is happy, then they communicate that and then the food is happy and then your guests are happy. True. That's a, it's a self-fulfilling um, 
prophecy when you just want people to be happy. Right. And our staff is full of pizza, so it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> They're full of pizza people. Well, with that, we conclude this Wednesday's Speaking Broadly. I want to thank you, Emily, for joining us and you. sharing your wisdom. And uh, listeners, I want to thank uh, the engineer today, David Tatashore. He's awesome. And encourage you to come back and listen next week to Speaking Broadly. Have a great day. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 